Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come, come in, and know that you are as welcome as the fall. It's still August, yes, but ah, August is nearly over, so come, come in, settle, scoop treats, pour drinks. The air is back to normal summer levels, cool and conditioned, but not to the Antarctic freeze state of the last three weeks. All is as it always has been. You've reached Tales to Terrify. You're in the nook. I'm Lawrence Santoro. And tonight, as promised last week, we'll have something utterly different. First, about the art on our homepage at TalesToTerrify.com. It is by an incredible artist, Mark Simonetti. It is an illustration for, of all things, H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Mark lives in France and has been on vacation for the past several weeks, and one has to wonder why, if you live in France, you have to go on a vacation. Nevertheless, it was difficult to communicate with him. I found his work online while seeking ominous-looking mountain images to use as enticements for our three-evening cast of Mountains of Madness. And there was Mark. Mark Simonetti allows that he's been a professional artist for about 10 years and is at work in fields such as matte paintings for television ads, cover art, and, by the way, you should take a look at his cover illustrations for certain editions of George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. And he also does concept art for video game companies and feature films. You can see some of Mark's art at... Well, at the site I've put on our homepage, so go there. And let's see, other than to suggest you go to the Tales to Terrify homepage and contemplate Mark's images, and whilst hovering about on TalesToTerrify.com, 
You might make a contribution or a commitment to help fund Tales to Terrify and the other neighborhoods of the District of Wonders. That's Crime City Central, protecting Project Pulp and the mothership, the Starship Sofa. And also, you could stop by Facebook and like us, and stop by iTunes and let the pod browsers of the universe know how much you approve of our weekly doings here in the Nook. Other than that, we've got nothing but fiction ahead. You know, you're about to hear an interesting story. Unless you think that's faint praise, it is not. It is a wonderfully rich tale of horror, terror, escape. It's many things. It's definitely horrific, but also has a second foot in science fiction and a third pespedis in epic fantasy. The title is The Red Empress, and it is set in a post-apocalyptic America in which magic seems magically to have appeared. In this world, as in all worlds, fantastical and not so, there are those on top and those who are definitely not on top. There are also ghouls abroad in this land, the animated dead who behave much like our old friends, the walking dead, with them, they share a ravenous hunger for human meat. And, of course, their bite turns that meal into the next eater of human. Here, however, our ghouls have an interesting use by those on the top. <laughs> I'll say no more. You'll hear. All of this is served up in a rather magically poetic mix by its author, Mr. Mike Allen. A few words about Mike. Beginning 82 weeks ago, episode 3 of Tales to Terrify, Mike began taking us on nearly monthly tours of the abattoir, that is, the worlds of horror, fiction, poesy, and film. Tonight, Mike takes us on a tour down Meat Alley with The Red Empress. The Red Empress is the first part of Mike's first novel, The Blackfire Concerto, now out from Haunted Stars Publishing. Mike was born in Minneapolis, six months before Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. He was raised among lizards and large black and yellow spiders on the rocky beaches of Guam, where his father was a teacher. He and his parents moved to a suburb of Chicago, then to a small mining town in the Appalachians. There, for good or for ill, Mike spent many wonderful hours, he says, of his formative years in a well-stocked library on a hill. His father, he tells me, made him read his favorite book, The Lord of the Rings, and that led Mike into paths that branched off to H.P. Lovecraft, Ursula K. Le Guin, Harlan Ellison, T.S. Eliot, Roger Zelazny, Stephen King, and, well, you know, more. Eventually, his family moved to Roanoke, Virginia, where he lives today. There is much more, of course, but now I want you to settle down and listen. Here is The Red Empress, Part One of the Blackfire Concerto.
Play now, pretty plumpkin, said the chef. His wide mouth twisted to favor Erzel with a smirk. The oil on his bald head gleamed, reflecting the candlelight. She settled in her chair on the stage, balanced the sound box of her harp between her knees, braced its neck against her shoulder, and caressed the strings. All twenty-two were in tune, and their song brought a sliver of comfort, for as long as she was allowed to play, she would live another day. The dining hall awaited its patrons. Tables arranged four wide and six deep made an orderly procession back through the narrow, chapel-like space to the bronze dragon doors that served as main entrance. To Erzel's right, past the corner of the stage, a pair of swinging saloon doors led to the kitchen, where the clank of dishes and utensils had fallen silent, though warm air still exhaled into the hall, bearing with it a stench of sour meat. Every mauve-draped table had its candle in place, a severed hand sealed in wax with a wick burning at the tip of each finger. Satisfied, the chef turned and nodded to the black-clad men by the bronze doors. He straightened, squared his shoulders, and given his inhuman height, his massive head, his black robe that swept to the floor, his red Roman collar, and the effusion of light through the room, which rendered every drape, tablecloth, and plate the color of bared gums. He resembled a demon carved from onyx and crowned with a moist clay skull. The chef's ushers opened the dining hall. The family filed in, led by their roly-poly, tuxedo-clad patriarch, who fixed his roomy gaze on Erzel as he wove between the tables toward the stage. Erzel wanted to fold inside her harp and disappear. Instead, she plucked. Those assembling in the room would enjoy her desperate lullaby to herself the same way ticks enjoyed warm blood. The family patriarch reached the chef. Though he stood only half the black-robed man's height, they acknowledged each other with polite nods, a greeting of equals. "'So glad you haven't wasted her!' the old man rubbed his ample belly in exaggerated anticipation of a meal. "'She'll be your masterpiece. Just the thought gives me reason to keep on living.' If the chef answered, Erzel did not hear his words. Her fingers alighted on string after string, exploring the limits of her three octaves, inventing melodies to bridge the scores she learned from her parents, the only parts of them she could keep. Her notes competed with the babble of the old man's clan, many of whom she recognized. The family visited the Red Empress often and stayed in the boat's guest quarters, here was the patriarch's gaunt, stooped wife in a shimmering snakeskin gown. Here, their jean and sorcelled sons and daughters and sons and daughters-in-law, the men blue-eyed and black-haired, the women icy blonde, traits shared with their teenage children. One boy and one girl both looked to be Erzel's age, 
She believed she was twelve, though she had no means to differentiate the days. The children showed no interest in her, as their mother herded them to their seats. Then came a commotion, surprised exclamations from the ushers. Erzel looked up to see a woman whose like she had never seen before standing at the entrance, extraordinarily tall, with a heavy bosom and long arms thick through the biceps, physically to most women what the chef would be to most men. And she was beautiful, with slow eyes beneath arched brows and wavy blue-black hair that cascaded to the waist of her velvet opera coat. She towered a head taller than Rogier's, the chief usher, who was trying to take the leather case she carried. This was the cause of the row. The woman was refusing. Erzel faltered in her playing. The woman clutched a large mandolin case. The chef strode toward the door with a panther's grace. But he didn't get far. The patriarch waved him off. She's our guest. Let her in. So instead, the chef aimed a glare at Rogier's, who shut up mid-sentence, and bowed. The woman joined the table nearest the patriarch's, set her case on the floor beside the chair an usher offered. She surveyed the dining hall with efficient tilts of her head, noticed Erzel, and gave her a brief, considering look. No expression moved her eyes or lips before she turned away. She unbuttoned her opera coat to reveal a bright blue blouse startling against the room's red palette. Erzel's heart sank at this dismissal from a fellow musician, and a chill spread through her bones. There was only one reason the boat's regular customers brought strangers. She concentrated on her playing. Even as the patriarch bellowed to the chef in a voice meant for the room at large, I've not yet had the pleasure of hearing Olyssa play her pipe, but clearly her skills are transcendent enough to open the heaviest purse, because when she came to us with her request to visit this boat, she even offered to pay for her place and was good for it. He brayed in laughter. But, good sir, I told her that such a fine meal as you provide should be offered as a gift or not at all. Erzel's eyes widened. The woman asked to come on board the Red Empress with all its passages painted black and its rank cargo screaming in cages? She nearly started from her chair when Olyssa laughed in return, her voice sharp and musical. I've heard so much about the food served here that its excellence cannot be denied. I am honored to be here. The chef inclined his head. I am humbled, and I pray you find my labors worthy. Another curt nod, and his crew began wheeling out the meal. The kitchen doors swung open as the chef's acolytes pushed out gurneys, bearing covered dishes. The chef remained in front of the stage, each subtle nod or finger twitch the wave of a conductor's wand, dictating every move of the service. Erzel tried to ignore the deceptively benign scents and sights of fresh bread loaves and cream-covered vegetables, but she noted the moment the long carving knife 
slid from the chef's left sleeve into his hand. The writing etched along its edge began to pulse, even before he raised the blade to shoulder height. When he did, his men lifted the cover over the largest dish. She wanted to shut her eyes, but knew better. She fixed her gaze on the newcomer, hoping not to draw unwanted attention. Olyssa observed the proceedings, stone-faced. In keeping with tradition, the once-human creature intended for the main course had been prepared so that its head remained uncooked. Its throat and tongue removed, it grimaced as the chef approached. The patriarch chortled and elbowed his spouse, "'Excellent choice, good sir. Remember when we brought him that one?' His wife afforded him a smile both sly and exasperated. No one else among the patrons of the Red Empress would dare to speak while the chef performed the grace. "'We thank you,' the chef said, "'whose life made everlasting shall become ours.'" The etchings on the knife flared as he made the cuts required of the ritual. He partook of the first morsel before offering the next pieces to the patriarch and his wife on a small saucer. Together they spoke, We thank you, and then ate, nodding their satisfaction. The rest of the dishes were unveiled, revealing spare limbs from other ghouls deemed too feeble to suit as a main course, Everyone at the patriarch's table watched Olyssa as the ushers brought her dinner. She showed none of the delight of the other diners, but neither did she seem repulsed. She raised her eyebrows ever so slightly as she sampled her first forkful, then continued to eat, nonchalant as if she dined on beans and bread. Arizel shuddered and withdrew into the rain of notes, a cascade that shut the dining hall out. She remained in that trance until she realized the family was getting up from their meal. Olissa, too, had risen, was approaching the stage, approaching the chef. Their heights made them oddly well-matched. Herzel had never seen a woman so tall. "'I have to give you my compliments.' The newcomer touched the chef on the arm, casual as an old friend. Her other hand gripped the mandolin case. In my own experience, school meat is the most difficult of all to make delicious. The chef's eyes narrowed, even as his smile widened. You are most welcome, madam. Erzel's heart lurched in her chest, Perhaps she misread this situation entire. Perhaps this Olissa was in no danger at all. Perhaps the family already considered her one of their own. She peered down at Erzel. You play well, she said. It is too bad your harp is so small. She turned to the chef. Surely the Red Empress can afford to buy her a better instrument? Such instruments are rare and it is rarer still to find one intact, as surely you know. We only expect this one to stay with us a little while longer, so. My investors see no need for such an extravagant expense. 
Olissa looked Erzel up and down. Wise, then. Mistress, said Rogiers at Alyssa's elbow. Your quarters? Oh, yes, please, she said. A meal that rich makes me just a little sleepy. I could stand to be refreshed. Once the usher let her out, the patriarch waddled up to the chef, eyes gleaming. A fine one, eh? He actually patted the chef on the belly, a bizarre paternal gesture. The chef pursed his lips, staring into some far distance, looking as thoughtful as Erzel had ever seen him. Indeed, he rumbled. Powerful, flooded with life. And Erzel knew that, fearsome as Olissa seemed, she would not live through the night. She continued to play until the hall was empty. She knew better than to stop. The Red Empress had once been a luxury paddle boat. Now it served as a floating fortress, permanently docked, admitting no one but crew, customers, and those the customers brought. Erzel was no longer certain how long she'd dwelt inside its pitch-black passageways. When she tried to remember the sky, it seemed like part of a story she'd once heard. So sometimes did her parents. She tried hard to keep them alive in her mind as more than memory wisps. When she curled on her pallet, she remembered her mother practicing the harp, and those notes would follow her into dream, or the drone of her father as he griped about the accounts he managed. The memories brought a lump to her throat. So often she had tuned him out. She wished now that she'd treasured every word. In her time inside the boat, months, maybe years, she'd found many places where a slender body could hide. So long as she was in her expected spot come mealtimes, the crew hardly cared where she was, though she didn't dare let them catch her spying. The doors to all the guest cabins faced into a narrow atrium that might once have been illuminated by a skylight. Now, electric chandeliers dangled from a ribbed metal ceiling. Stairs at either end led from the second-floor balcony to the lower deck. The atrium was empty when Erzel slipped inside, Though muffled voices, muted laughter seeped through the walls. She scurried down the stairs, feather light, and across the ground level to the opposite end, heart hammering at the thought that one of the doors to either side might swing open. She made it to the stairs at the opposite end, squeezed through a gap to one side, carefully dragged her harp in after her. She scooted as far back in shadow as she could and peered through the slats. She'd seen this tragedy played out so many times, her tears had dried up long ago. But Alyssa didn't come off as someone easily tricked or overpowered. Erzel had to know what would happen. Alerted by the creak of a hinge, she looked up. The chef loomed at the entrance, chandelier light glinting from his scalp. Six crewmen filed in behind him. He set off along the balcony, his slippers reducing his footfalls to whispers, the men following. He tapped politely on a door. Herzel wanted to scream a warning she dared not. But when the door opened, 
she heard a greasy chuckle that made her stomach flip. The patriarch joined the men on the balcony, saggy flesh visible through the gap in his bathrobe. He intended to watch the capture. Then a cabin door opened on the first floor, and Olissa strode into the atrium. Everyone on the balcony, except for the chef, stared with wide eyes. Erzel held her breath. The scene had gone off script. Olissa had removed her opera coat, fully revealing her riveting blue blouse and a gold-hemmed indigo skirt suited for summer dances. She'd braided her hair into a coil, held in place by a flat ivory pick that glittered at either end with bejeweled knobs. She walked to one of the mesh tables that dotted the courtyard, set down her mandolin case and opened it without even looking up at the men on the balcony. From the case, she lifted a long, steel-gray tube. Etchings dimpled the surface, drew strange patterns of reflected light down its length. One end had a notch on its rim. Over that, she fitted a tiny wooden piece that Erzel recognized after a moment as the mouthpiece of a hand-carved reed. Then Alyssa took what looked like a small flared bell and fitted it over grooves at the other end. Settling on a bench, Olissa held the bizarre instrument against her chest, put the reed to her lips, and began to play. She blew across the reed, while her free hand fluttered at the mouth of the bell, covering and uncovering the opening with two fingers, three, four, or her flattened palm. Notes fluttered and trilled, faster than Erzel could ever play on her harp, the etchings on Olissa's pipe began to glow soft blue. The chef made a move toward the stairs, but the old man put a hand on his arm to stop him. The tune soared quick and haunting, like a child's ghost singing from the bottom of a well. Other doors opened. Heads, blonde and brunette, appeared. Blue eyes watched, enraptured. When she stopped, wistful sighs echoed in the narrow space. She addressed the patriarch on the balcony with a coy smile. I had thought, after that wonderful meal, that I should repay your kindness. Perhaps tomorrow, when we eat again, I could accompany your harp player. Her music, though lovely, is unrefined. But if I accompany her, I can promise you the experience will be something truly transcendent. Oh, how the old man's eyes twinkled. The chef began to speak, but stopped mid-syllable as his patron raised a hand. My clan and I had imagined leaving in the morning, he lied. But what's one more night to the likes of us? It would please me immensely to see such lovely pairs of hands create something beautiful together. With a slight bow of her head, Alyssa replied, It would be my honor. A smirk curled across the chef's long jaw. Splendid, then. It shall be so. Then he descended the stairs and approached her table while his men looked on unblinking. He spoke more softly as he reached her. Madam, as one who knows of ghoul flesh, you will surely understand. May I examine this fascinating instrument? She raised her eyebrows. 
Of course, and handed it to him. Erzel's pulse pounded in her ears as the chef's meaty hand closed around the pipe. She knew the glowing knife would slide out of his sleeve at any moment, but instead he held the pipe up to the light and stared down its full length. As he did, the blue glow reappeared. It grew brighter as he turned the tube over. Erzel realized he was reading the symbols. It will always be true to its purpose, Olissa said. She sounded for the first time tense. At last, the chef handed it back to her. An intriguing trinket. When we're all rested, I'd love to know more about its make. Alyssa smiled, showing teeth. Perhaps. The chef smirked and nodded, then gestured to his men, who followed as he left the guest quarters. Alyssa settled and began to play again. This time there was no tune, merely practiced scales, though even those were breathtaking, executed at perfect pitch with incredible speed. The old man regarded her for an uncomfortably long time. Erzel wondered if he would join her at the table, but finally he grinned, displaying long yellow teeth, and withdrew. The other doors had long since shut. Olissa took a breath, placed the reed to her lips, and beside Erzel a voice whispered, Quiet, girl. Erzel gasped. The voice, Olissa's, continued, I know, I know you're, you're there. there. Wait until Wait I've gone back, back to my room. room. I've gone back Wait to my count of one thousand. Then come inside. Come inside. My door, my door will be unlocked. unlocked. She wasn't looking Erzel's way, nor were her lips moving. She removed the reed and bell from the pipe and replaced them in the case, which she tucked under an arm, keeping the pipe in her hand. She retired, and Erzel was once again alone. She followed the instructions she'd been given— an eternity later, she slipped into Alyssa's room. Its interior was opulent and plush as such a cramped, windowless space could be made, with carpeting, bedding, and wallpaper all red as a womb. A mirror glinted from atop a wooden dresser, and Erzel glimpsed herself in it, a gaunt ghost of a girl, with eyes huge in their hollow sockets, her once tawny skin now moon-pale, her sandy hair tangled in an unkempt nest, her mint-green blouse threadbare. She averted her eyes, resisted any urge to take another glance. Olissa perched on the edge of the bed, looking more giantess than ever in her blue and gold, cleaning the bore of her pipe with a long, thin brush. The pipe's case lay open, exposing custom-fitted felt-lined padding, with a long compartment carved out to hold the pipe. There were notches, too, for the bell, the reed, and for a mouthpiece. A panel gaped open in this layer of padding, revealing it to be hollow, with even more parts for the instrument contained inside. "'Who made that for you?' Erzel asked. Olissa regarded her coolly. "'What makes you think someone else made this?' She sounded angry. Erzel didn't answer. "'I'm looking for a woman, tall as I am.' Her hair is long and wavy like mine, her skin brown like mine, but her eyes are like yours, green. Have you seen anyone like that here? No. Her mouth thinned to a grim line. How long have you been here? 
I think two years, three. What's your name? Erzel told her, cold and businesslike. Why are you here? Erzel started to cry. A tender hand against her cheek surprised her. I'm sorry if this is difficult, Olissa said. I need to know. It'll help us both. She had no reason to trust this stranger. But perhaps because of that single word, help, Erzel gave in to a treacherous surge of hope. She told her story, all of it. Her parents, her father, an accountant, an amateur flautist, her mother, a concert harpist, frequently sought after by the tenement lords who ruled what was left of the world. The invitation from the Galts, one of the wealthiest clan in Minipal, far wealthier than her parents could ever dream, rich enough to employ their own militia against ghouls and other clans. Her father's eagerness, her mother's worry, the small jet that took them out of the walled city and down the length of the great river, the descent through the riverboat's vault door. She described the crowd that had boarded many rich clans and the family themselves, Erzel did not know their real names, to whom all the rest kowtowed. The meal, the awful taste of that spiced and spoiled meat, how even with head reeling and stomach boiling, she'd been made to play her harp at the insistence of the patriarch, how the chef and his men came for them afterward, overpowered her father and mother and dragged them away, how the patriarch had leered as he told the chef she wasn't ripe enough yet, that she could enhance the meals with her talents until ready for the table herself. They were going to do it to you, she said. Take you down to the ghouls, let them bite you, make you change, then bring you back all carved up like those ghouls you saw today, all chopped up except your head like they did, like they did. Erzel no longer saw the cabin. She saw the dining hall. Scene after scene that she'd fought to wall away with the notes from her harp. Sometimes when it's someone young, older than me, but still young, they bring them out without cooking them, first snarling and howling and snapping their teeth like dogs. They're strapped down and the family will cut away pieces, eat them right from the body. The old man loves to do that. With the girls, sometimes the boys, sometimes. Olissa's touch on her shoulder startled her, but she didn't scream, nor was she crying any longer. Her words came from a hollow space where tears and screams no longer mattered. The piper's question startled her even more. Where do they keep the ghouls? Erzel blinked, couldn't for a few moments form an answer. I think... They're in the below deck. The cargo hold? Where is that? I think you can only get to it through the kitchen. I see. Alyssa pulled out the brush, then wiped the outside of the pipe with a cloth. Erzel stared at the inscriptions along its gray-blue length. She couldn't bring herself to ask what Alyssa planned to do, so she asked, How does your pipe work? It works because of the same... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Magic that made the storms and ghouls. That's all you need to know. She put the pipe away and took Erzel by the shoulders. Go back to where you sleep. If anyone asks, you are with me, practicing for tomorrow. Her grip tightened. Don't let anyone know what we talked about. Now the words burst out. What are you going to do? Olissa's fingers dug in. This conversation never happened. Erzel wrenched herself away. She wanted to shout at this insane woman that no plan she had could ever work. She had to get out, get out, get out. But Alyssa's unblinking stare silenced her as roughly as a cloth stuffed in her mouth. She hefted her harp and left. As soon as she stepped outside, the door shut and locked. Hours passed before Erzel finally slept. When she did... Yet again she dreamed of thrashing on a table, the old man leaning over her, candlelight glinting off the knives clutched in both his hands. The second dinner was unlike any Erzel had ever witnessed in her time aboard the Red Empress. For the first time, the family's guest joined them alive and intact for the next day's meal— had events unfolded as normal, the patrons would have returned to the hall wearing ritual black and amulets that glowed the same red as the chef's knives, and the guest would have returned through the kitchen doors. But here they came once again in tuxedos and gowns, Olissa in her opera coat. As she had last night, she wore her hair up, held in place with a jeweled pick. Exhausted, Erzel dreaded what lay ahead, 
But her fingers moved without her conscious direction down the octaves of the harp. They understood what survival required. Rogiers offered Alyssa a chair, but she surprised him and everyone else by gliding straight to the stage. As she set down the mandolin case, the patriarch chuckled at some private amusement, his belly jiggling. The chef, who stood at his usual post before the stage, raised an eyebrow as she passed. Tell your man to bring that chair here, Olissa said, imperious. Erzel cringed, but the chef did as commanded. Soon the tall woman sat beside her, back straight and proper as she assembled pipe, reed, and bell. Erzel's fingers faltered at the strings. Just play what comes to you, Olissa said. I'll follow along. So she plucked out yet another variation on a too familiar melody, and Olissa's pipe sang, filling in the spaces between Erzel's notes, fluttering around and above them, washing over Erzel as if the roof of the Red Empress had cracked to allow in cool breezes and warm sunlight. Her heartbeat sped, and her hands began to move with new energy. She altered the melody, improvised, and the pipe harmonized without pause. She created new phrases, not from fear, but exhilaration, and Alyssa matched her measure for measure. Their audience appeared to share Nerzel's fugue, still and silent, all eyes fixed on the players. Even the help seemed paralyzed, until barked orders from the chef sent them scurrying. He followed after his men through the saloon doors. None of the family paid them any mind. The runes on the pipe started to glow, shining brighter and brighter blue. Herzel's fingers summoned an exquisite tempest of sound. She hardly noticed when Olissa spun the bell off the end of the pipe and palmed it. Even the pipe's notes still quivered inside her head, accompanied by a whisper. Play, play, Erzel, like your blood's on fire. Play, play, play. Her hands scaled the octaves fast as a waterfall, not once missing a string, while Olissa reached inside the mandolin case. She found dual melodies, built a harmony from nothing, but broke out in sweat, because without the pipe it was abruptly hard work, the hardest thing she'd ever done, and her concentration began to slip, because from the corner of her eye, she noticed Olissa had attached a black, rectangular device to the end of the pipe that had held the bell. The piper sat up, holding an oddly shaped column of wood that she levered against the black attachment and locked into place. An instant later, she clicked the open end of a thin metal box into the rectangular device, the patriarch's oldest son realized what Olissa was doing and lunged from his chair. Olissa put the butt of the carved wooden piece against her muscular shoulder, and Erzel's fingers abandoned the strings as she recognized Olissa now, impossibly, held a rifle. The runes along what was now the rifle's barrel flared in a blaze of hungry red. A dark pinhole appeared in the oldest son's forehead, just below the point of his widow's peak. Blood sprayed from the back of his head as he bowled forward, and at the table directly behind him, an aunt loosed a gurgling scream as the bullet's trajectory ended in her throat. She collapsed, dragging the tablecloth with her. Olis's voice boomed in Erzel's head. Behind, behind me, me, down, down, down. down.
A shell casing bounced and clattered on the stage planks. When it came to rest, runes etched in its brass wormed matchstick orange, then extinguished. Rogier stood stunned at the saloon doors, a gurney stalled in front of him. He started fumbling for something. Erzel never learned what. In one motion, Olissa stood, swiveled, and twitched her finger at the trigger. Her shoulder jerked. Rogier's dropped like a sack. The patriarch stood up, astonishingly all smiles, his hands raised to placate. There is no need, and dropped to the carpet, the hole in his forehead a twin to his son's. Another trigger pull, and his wife's gray head snapped back, a look of surprise frozen on her craggy face. Gasps and shrieks from the remaining family members quickly fell silent. Peering down the barrel, Olissa stage-projected, her voice merry. So much more merciful than what they deserved. See the rune that burns on the casings of those bullets, good hosts? No matter how much flesh of the ghoul you've consumed, take my word that this weapon will kill you, and take my word that it doesn't miss. It is always true to its purpose. One of the blonde granddaughters screeched, You murdered... The bullet took her in the eye. I'll kill the next one that makes a sound, Olissa said. Now leave. And she smiled. Whoever is last to the door dies. Silent chaos overtook the hall as the family scrambled for the exits. Erzel found herself fighting not to laugh and terrified that if she began, she'd never stop. One of the granddaughter's husbands stood his ground as the others fled behind him, Someone not of the blood, a pasty fellow with a weak chin and teeth that recalled rodents, his ill-fitting tuck stretched by his girth. Sweat plastered his thinning hair to his pate. The man's gaze was affixed to the business end of Alyssa's wickedly long gun. What a noble sacrifice, the piper said. Carrion eater. And she delivered on her promise. Then she apparently took complete leave of her senses because she dashed straight for the kitchen door. She stopped beside it, with back pressed against the wall, out of view of anyone on the other side. She glanced back at Erzel, who still lay on the stage beside her harp gawping, and a gentle voice whispered in Erzel's head, Hide, hide yourself. Olissa pivoted to dash past the gurney and through the swinging doors, and as she did, the chef's bulk smashed into her and sent her stumbling back. He wrenched the rifle out of her grip and flung it aside, slammed her to the floor and crouched atop her, one huge hand crushing her throat, the other raising a meat cleaver that glowed as fierce a red as her discarded rifle. Her rifle. Erzel started to crawl toward it, the cleaver swung down. She sprang into a run. Alyssa blocked the blow with both hands, the bright blade suspended inches from her face as the chef squeezed her neck. She gasped, face reddening as he angled the blade, forcing it down, his smirk widening. She was strong, but no match for his sheer mass. They stayed that way a moment, eyes locked as he bore down slowly, and the cleaver descended to Alyssa's throat. Then she broke from his gaze and turned her head, pushed his arm just a fraction to the side, let go of his wrist with one hand. He laughed at her maneuver and didn't notice as her free hand grabbed the end of her hairpick. 
Then he reared back with a roar, clutching his face, a jade knob jutting half an inch out of his left eye. The pick remained in Alyssa's hair, an empty sheath, one jeweled end now missing. Erzel almost forgot to pick up the rifle. Almost. She didn't know how to use it, but as she lifted the rifle, her enemy saw the glowing barrel and scrambled. He ran into the kitchens, howling, stilettos still protruding from his face. Olissa coughed and swore, I need that knife back. She saw Erzel and loosed a long sigh. Thank you. She held out an arm. Give. Erzel hesitated. We can leave now. Olissa's voice grew steely. I can't go yet. Why? Erzel pleaded. She hated how frightened she sounded. Olissa used the gurney to pull herself to her feet. She could easily have wrested the rifle away, but instead replied, There's no time to tell now. Give. Erzel obeyed. Without another word, Olissa charged into the kitchen. The rifle discharged then again. Three more of the kitchen crewmen dashed out and kept running, none giving Erzel a second glance. She watched them throw open the bronze dragon doors, thought about slipping out after them, thought about the armed guards at the vault door that led to the outside world, wondered if they'd gotten word were on the way here. The chef's abandoned cleaver glinted from the floor. She picked it up. Though an ember glow still pulsed in the symbols etched along its blade, it felt no different in her hand than an ordinary knife. It was heavy, suited to its usual wielder. She followed... Olissa. Rogier's body, and that of another crewman, lay just inside the doorway. Another lay dead between two long steel counters, face down in the mess spewed from two overturned gurneys, colorful sprays of vegetables, broken tubs of spreads and dips, a brown pool of soup, scattered slabs and strips of gray meat, withered arms and legs strewn among them, severed from their owners, browned and glazed, in the center of it all, an upended four-layer cake stanched the flow from bleeding wine bottles. The remains of the ghouls who'd given their limbs to the feast were arranged on a countertop in neatly severed pieces, glistening bones chopped apart and stripped of all meat. Split ribs yawned like shutters, the black muck inside mostly scooped out. The main course was arranged on the other counter, naked, immobile, except for its uncooked head, one lidless eye twitched, the other hidden beneath a droop of loose skin. A wormy remnant of tongue flapped at Erzel as it snapped its jaws. Click, click, click. Her shoes splashed through spilled stew as she ran past it. She passed a steaming oven that she didn't dare glance at, reached an opening in the far wall, darted into a narrow passage leading out of the kitchen, and drew up short as a huge figure strode toward her out of the dark, she lifted the cleaver above her head, but the figure grabbed her wrist. Olissa's laughter held no humor. Is that for me? Really? When Erzel shook her head, Alyssa let go. She had undone her opera coat, exposing a vest made of thick leather. She was using a handkerchief to wipe off the jeweled stiletto. Erzel stared. Is he... No, alas, he pulled it out himself. That one has partaken so much of the undead, even one of my bullets might not kill him. She replaced the needle-thin blade in its sheath, still bound in her hair. Help me, hold this. She handed Erzel the stock and chamber of her rifle assembly. A groan 
emanated from the darkened passage. Olissa paid it no mind. She produced the reed and bell from a coat pocket and reattached them to the pipe. Another moan, a higher-pitched, sounded behind her. Then another. What are you doing? Erzel demanded. Olissa scowled at her. Or it wasn't a scowl. The piper's eyes were moist. She ground her teeth. I have, I have to, to see if my sister's, sister's down, there. down there. Her mouth wasn't moving. You, you asked who made this pipe for me. For me. My, my sister, sister did. She foresaw, she foresaw I would need it, but her magic didn't tell her why. She took the rifle assembly back from Erzel, tucked it in an inside coat pocket. She, she ran, ran afoul of sorcery, sorcery, even worse than this lot's perversions. But it doesn't have a complete hold. She put a hand on Erzel's shoulder. The words in her head sounded plaintive, as if Olissa needed to convince herself just as much as her new companion. Because, because notes, notes still play, play. Something, something remains. remains. Enough, Enough that if I find, I find her... her... She squeezed her eyes shut. When, when I, find I find her, her I'll, I'll undo, undo what, what was, was done, done to, her. to her. She rebuttoned her opera coat, turned... And for the first time, Erzel saw the open hatch in the floor behind her. Beyond its black depths, the corridor dead-ended. And, And if, if I can't, can't undo, undo, it, undo it, I'll end I'll her suffering. Erzel asked, You think she's here? Why? The top of a metal ladder protruded above the lip of the hatch. Olissa sat with her boots over the edge. She wasn't looking at Erzel. Wait, wait here. here. Wait Once, here. I'm, Once done, I'm done, I'm we'll leave. leave. She lowered herself onto the rungs and vanished into the pitch dark. And in that darkness, a chorus of groans and hisses rising in volume as more and more voices joined in. Something let out a shrill giggle. Then notes began to ascend from the hole, a sweet flutter amidst the growls and moans of the ghouls. Erzel crept closer, peering over the edge. Deep below... Blue phosphorescence glimmered as somewhere out of her view, Olissa blew across her reed. The metal cavern of the cargo hold echoed with throat-tearing screams, howls, shrieks, splatters of sprayed vomit, the cries of men and women, and things too decayed to be called either, coming from mouths stretched inhumanly wide. Moist flesh slithered, hands pounded cage bars or seized those bars and shook them. Still Olissa played, her melody fragile as butterflies. In the pitch, the pipe flared bright blue. And the ghouls fell silent. The pipe's glow dimmed as Olissa moved further away from the ladder. The notes she blew repeated with such speed and complexity it sounded like the piping of three musicians or four Erzel leaned over the hatch until she feared falling, trying to see. She could count each heartbeat over the trill of the music. She began to descend the ladder, mouse quiet. Each time she took her foot from a rung, she imagined a slimy hand closing around her ankle and felt no safer once she reached the slanted floor. Then her eyes adjusted, and when she saw what was happening, a kind of wonder took over. The latter had deposited her against one wall of the hold, which stretched further to either side than the light from Alyssa's pipe could reach. Iron cages large enough to hold lions lined the opposite wall, each crammed full of ghouls, faces melting with rot, muscles 
animated by magic, soft and ravenous things that had once been living people, who'd been brought here, struggling and screaming, and locked in the cages. The sorcery that kept the ghouls alive compelled them to bite and pass on their terrible curse, spread the living death, keep the larder packed for the customers of the Red Empress. The monsters pressed against the bars of their cages, watching Olyssa as she played. She walked slowly past them, so close, close enough for claws to seize, and looked each creature in the face, searching her light-revealing mouths that oozed drool, dipping to illuminate the legless ones crouched to the feet of their fellows. She stared into every suppurating eye. Olissa's sister? A ghoul? As Erzel watched, her own urgent pulse raced in her neck, her temples. She wanted to go to her rescuer, but she couldn't bring herself to move. She kept her back against the wall, its solidity providing at least an illusion of security. The darkness growing between her and the piper could have been another wall, built from terror. No light reached into the hold's opposite side. In that void, a red flicker. So faint, Erzel wondered if she actually saw anything. But there it was again, an ember glow, disembodied in the darkness, a thin line of symbols curved like the edge of a knife. The ghouls across from her were no more than vague shapes, their wet surfaces reflecting the barest hints of the piper's light. Something huge and black moved between them and Erzel, striding silently toward Alyssa. She glimpsed again a cobweb slender glow from runes etched on a blade. Erzel's knees went weak. No, 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 no! The first step took so much effort she might well have been bound to the wall by magic. She made herself take another, another. She floated in the dark, a mere arm's length from the motionless ghouls in their cages, the cleaver barbell heavy in her hand. Then she was running. The chef's black form eclipsed Olissa's light. He spun at the sound of Erzel's footfalls. She swung wildly, struck solid flesh. The chef bellowed a wounded animal, the cleaver's handle ripped from her fingers. A mountain collapsed on her, crushed her under its brutal weight as the ghouls erupted in pandemonium. Unable to move or breathe, she faded. She heard Olissa's shouts, one more voice in the chaos, and the sound of a hammer striking metal. Fading, fading, her awareness reduced to the pain swelling in her chest, building, building, threatening to burst her. She thought the pain was the chef's knife stabbing in until he flopped away and air rushed into her lungs. The shrieks of the ghouls were deafening as Olissa dragged her away from the cages. The splotches cleared from Erzel's vision. Olissa stood over her, holding the glowing pipe lengthwise in her teeth. In her hand, she held the meat cleaver. That, too, glowed where the blade wasn't black with blood. The chef was pinned against the bars of the cage, suspended lengthwise three feet above the ground, straining against green-gray arms wrapped around his shoulders, his waist, his hips, his biceps and elbows, his legs. One ghoul tore at a long wound gaping just above his left knee. With a flip of her stomach, Erzel recognized it as the result of her cleaver swing. Another monster gnawed at the stump of the chef's ankle. Herzel stared, uncomprehending, until she noticed what lay in the blood pooled in the dented floor. Two slippered feet, two hands, one still clutching the ceremonial knife. 
One of the ghouls, a shriveled woman with bulging yellow eyes, extended a bone-thin arm, snatched that hand, and dragged it into the cage. A moment later, she stabbed the blade into the chef's neck and began to saw. His mouth twisted in a snarl. Erzel wanted to take the cleaver from Olissa to aid the ghouls in their task. In her mind, she sat on the stage, harp balanced between her knees, as the covers were lifted off the gurneys and the things that had once been her father and mother grimaced without tongues. Olissa's voice in her head, He won't won't die, die. whatever Whatever they they do do to him. Go back, 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 Erzel. Stay Stay hidden hidden, and wait wait till I'm till I'm done. Her words brooked no argument. Erzel turned at the ladder, foot on the first rung, to see Olissa toss the cleaver so it fell within the ghoul's reach. An eternity passed, it seemed, before the music of the pipe began again, and the ghouls went quiet. When the song stopped at last, the creatures in the hold remained subdued. Olissa emerged from the hatch. Her eyes glistened. She said only, She's not there. Without the terror of the chef to spur them on, the crew of the Red Empress proved that keeping their lives mattered more than any loyalty to their cult, though even cowering obeisance didn't save them if they failed to follow Alyssa's orders with sufficient speed. Alyssa's wrath frightened Erzel, and at the same time her heart rejoiced at every death. When she and Alyssa reached the gangway, the black powerboat used to ferry guests to the Empress was pulling away from the wharf with a deafening roar. Figures moved in the cabin, silver ghosts above waters turned to ink by the moonlight. Alyssa fired four shots, yanked out the magazine, took another from her opera coat, fired two more. The boat slowed, and the engine stalled. Her voice carried clear as a chime. Bring that boat back. Sounds of whispers and weeping. A high voice shrieked, No! Start the boat! The rifle reported, silenced the protester mid-scream. A man called, We're coming back! I'm watching, Alyssa said. A black-uniformed crewman had to lean over another one slumped at the wheel in order to steer. A child's sobs grew louder as the boat pulled alongside the dock. Olissa strode down the gangway, unbuttoned opera coat sweeping behind her, the barrel of her weapon trained on the boat's occupants. She spoke in a conversational tone. Come off of there. Bring your dead with you. When the remaining members of the family hauled the last corpse off the boat, the twelve-year-old boy that Erzel had noticed before, his twin sister wailing beside him, Olissa addressed the clan. You brought me here to feed me to ghouls and dine on my living corpse because you thought it would keep old man death away. I think the results are fair trade. Do what I tell you, and when I leave I promise it will be the last time you ever see me. A dark-haired, blue-eyed youth spat, face swollen with anger and grief. We still have business with you! One of the others raised a staying hand, too late. We'll find you. There's nowhere you can go where you'll be out of our reach. Olissa raised her eyebrows. Is that so? And didn't wait for an answer. She killed the youth who spoke, the elder who tried to shush him, 
Two more crewmen who groped for weapons fell. Mayhem erupted as the family scattered into the dark, but Alyssa didn't stop, her rifle blazing with every shot. She emptied her clip and loaded another one to shoot those who dived into the water. At the end, two crewmen who'd sat petrified in the boat during the massacre were the only ones left alive. Alyssa ordered them back onto the Red Empress to aid in the tasks she'd already set for their fellows. She had the harp and pipe case brought to the wharf and vegetables from the kitchen stores, the best stuff, not the slop Erzel had been forced to eat all through her captivity. Erzel sat on a pylon and dined over the bodies of her enemies, feeling both sick and elated. Alyssa spoke in her mind, Spare, Spare yourself, yourself only a little. We'll, we'll starve later if you don't. The deck of the Red Empress had once sported tiers of glorious windows, since paneled over with black metal. Alyssa watched the crewmen scurry there, laboring to undo moorings that had rusted in place years ago. At last, one of the men shouted, All done, I swear! As if cued, the wharf shook, and the gangway creaked as the current started to push the Red Empress out of place. Wood split, and one of the banisters snapped and fell into the river. "'Swim,' Olissa called. "'You'll regret it if you stay.' But she was disassembling her rifle again, exchanging stock and chamber for Bell and Reed. "'You asked me why I believe my sister could be here,' came a new whisper. "'She is being used for her magic, by vermin like these. "'I know this in my heart, even if I don't yet know how or where.' She began to play. "'But one day I will.' Before Olissa left the ghoul cages, she had unlocked them. Erzel didn't know she'd done so until she heard the noises coming from the Red Empress. As it drifted toward the middle of the river, the undead boiled from its hatch. Don't worry, young one. They won't harm us. Nor will they be of any more use to carrion eaters. The runes on Olissa's pipe shone brighter than the moon. She called to the ghouls, drew them off the floating fortress and into the water... They fell like fruit from an overturned basket, and the current tumbled them away. Erzel had balanced her heart between her knees, even before the piper whispered, Join me. Join me. Join me. Beneath the red moon, she plucked new melodies in the spaces Olissa left for her. So began the first of many lessons. Thank you for sharing that with us, Mike. I look forward to reading the whole book. As mentioned, Mike Allen lives in Roanoke, Virginia. He lives there with his wife, who is his frequent editing assistant. Her name is Anita. Their dog, Loki, and their pussycats, Persephone and Pandora. By day, he is the arts columnist for Roanoke's daily newspaper. He is also a writer, editor, publisher, and poet, as you probably already know. His poetry collection, Strange Wisdoms of the Dead, was a Philadelphia Inquirer editor's choice selection in 2006. His horror tale, The Button Bin, was a finalist for the Nebula Award for Best Short Story in 2009. 
His poems and short stories have appeared in Asimov's Science Fiction, Weird Tales, Strange Horizons, Goblin Fruit, Interzone, The Best Horror of the Year One, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Cthulhu's Reign, Solaris Rising 2, the new Solaris Book of Science Fiction, and other places. Dagan Books currently has plans to bring out his first collection of short fiction, The Button Bin, and other stories. Mike is also the editor of the critically acclaimed Clockwork Phoenix anthologies of weird fiction, and in 2012, he successfully raised more than $10,000 through Kickstarter.com to produce a fourth Clockwork Phoenix volume. He also edits Mythic Delirium, the 15-year-old journal of award-winning speculative poetry that has just transformed into a webzine showcasing both poetry and fiction thanks to a second successful Kickstarter campaign. You can follow his efforts as a writer at Descent into light, all one word, dot com, as an editor at mythicdelirium.com, and as both on Twitter at, at mythicdelirium. All of that will be on our homepage also. The Red Empress was narrated for us tonight by Ms. Claire Suzanne Elizabeth Cooney, best known as CSE Cooney, and in addition to being a wondrous reader, Claire is also a writer of grand accomplishment and rare achievement who collects knives and books. Her fiction and poetry can be found in Rich Horton's Year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy for 2011 and 2012, also in Steam Powered 2 and Clockwork Phoenix 3 at Apex, Subterranean, Strange Horizons, Podcastle, Goblin Fruit, and mythic delirium. Of herself, Claire says she grew up in a desert with ten brothers and a plastic tub of dress-up clothes. Later, much later, she and her tub migrated to Chicago, where eventually she got a degree in fiction writing and a minor in theater, and met me and many others at Twilight Tales. She now lives and writes in a well-appointed Rhode Island garret across from a Victorian strolling park. Her poetry collection, How to Flirt in Fairyland and Other Wild Rhymes, and her novella in stories, Jack of the Hills, are available on Amazon.com. Her three most recent novellas, by the way, may be found online at Blackgate Magazine and Giganotosaurus, that's G-I-G-A-N-O-T-O, S-A-U-R-U-S. Claire, by the way, is the blog editor for Blackgate Magazine, wherein she has a novella forthcoming, and she keeps her own blog at C-S-E-C-O-O-N-E-Y C-O-O-N-E-Y, dot livejournal.com. And by the further way, in addition to reading from the Blackfire Concerto, Claire was also the editor of the book. And that, as I've said 85 or so times, will be that for this week, children of the night. I would have you be upstanding. I ask you to pile your bowls and beverage vessels in the sink, where Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, and his lovely companion, the fair Ms. Tabitha, will take care of them and stack them for next week's visit. At which you will hear, yes, 
something different. And something I think will tweak your horror druthers. And now, be on your way. Be attentive to the sounds of the night as you go. The silence around you, especially on the side streets, can be oppressive, frightening. It amplifies fears, perhaps. You might imagine shuffling feet. You might imagine noises in the throat. Well, you can always whistle, of course. You can imagine a harp or a duet between strings and reeds making sweet and subtle music in your head. That'll take you home. That'll get you up the stairs and into bed, where you will surely settle down and imagine there the voice of a tongueless head to sing you off to pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.